Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Grief Observed podcast. As always, I am your host, Brad Morell, and I appreciate you being here today. If you want to be on the podcast, just send me an email at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com or find our, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash griefobservedpodcast, and uh, just send me an email and tell me a little bit about your grief story as the guest today did. And I want to bring on my next guest. Her name is Mary Beth, and she's wanting to speak about the uh, loss of her son. So Mary Beth, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate you being here. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard dealing with uh, grief. And, and I always say I hate meeting people this way, but uh, but I'm thankful that you're willing to share your story and, and just really bring some light to the grief community in uh, mm -hmm. multiple ways, not just through your story, but through some of the things that you have going on in life. So why don't you first tell the listeners a little bit about your story or, or who you are? Okay. Um, my name's Mary Beth and I live in Delaware and I was a registered nurse for 36 years. I had a son, Matt. He was a really wonderful guy, uh, really more like a friend than a son. And unfortunately, he had a business. He was a car mechanic. And one day he hurt his back lifting an engine out of a car. And he went to the emergency room. Now, this was back in the early 2000s. And uh, they gave him Oxycontin for the pain. They never did an x-ray, never suggested an MRI or physical therapy or anything. And um, unfortunately, they also did not warn him about how addictive the opioids were. And he, of course, needed to be out of pain so he can continue to work. That was his livelihood. So he continued to take the pills and was able to work and next thing you know within the next month or two um you know i started noticing things um different about him he lived at the beach he owned his own business and he was very meticulous about himself and his home and i would go down to visit and things were just a mess there were dirty dishes in the sink um he had two labs which were his family his buddies and dog hair would greet me when I opened the door. And I, I just knew that wasn't right. So I began to talk to him. And, you know, the disease is so powerful that it convinces people that they can handle it, that they are in control. And uh, sadly, that's really what happened to Matt. Mm. And he had struggled for eight years and sadly he passed away in january the 3rd of 2015 in a so-called sober home in florida and it was just the pills he was afraid of needles so he never used heroin or anything that was injectable and as a nurse i, I feel foolish now looking back i never thought he would die i thought well as long as he doesn't inject um you know we'll be okay we can we can beat this well sadly did i know how affected the brain becomes and it really does take over their thought processes their judgment calls so he he passed away and i just really had the shock of my life i've lost you know family members I've lost pets, I've lost friends, but until this loss of my child, I had no clue how devastating, how destruction, uh, destructive, and, and just how shattering this loss permeates into your life. I mean, I was completely shattered. I was a nurse in the NICU. I took care of critical care babies. And, you know, sadly, we would lose quite a few. Mm. And I remember sitting with a mother who had lost her baby. And she was rocking, you know, her deceased infant in her arms. 
And I remember just touching her shoulder and saying, oh, it'll be okay. And, you know, now I look back and I really wish I could find her and apologize because I had no clue the pain that this woman was just experiencing as I sat there with her. And knowing now what I know, I just want to tell her how sorry I am and that I should have just hugged her and remained silent. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes uh, no words at all may be more powerful than trying to, I guess, fill in the gaps. And that that's something that we normally do, I think, especially at funerals, that people are just so uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. And I think sometimes just a hug without saying anything at all can be so, so powerful. But I don't think that any parent knows loss until they have experienced it for themselves. And, and even here as I sit, I, I have one daughter who is living and I don't know what the pain is, but I, I can tell you that the way I view it, and especially knowing the grief community, um, I don't know how people do it. I really don't. I, I just, mm-hmm. um, now do you have other children? I have an older son, Mike. Um, they were really, we call them Irish twins. <laughs> they were a year <laughs> and 20 days apart. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, I, I and I, I feel also, you know, very guilty because when I got the phone call that Matt had passed away, I was in such shock. I actually felt like I had an out-of-body experience. It, mm. it was, I was at work. My husband came in and we had just lost my mother-in-law probably about six months uh, earlier. And my father-in-law, you know, they'd been married forever and he wasn't taking it very well. Well, my husband showed up at the hospital. He was crying and I thought it was his father. And when I heard the words, you know, it's Matt, he's dead. I really thought I just, I felt like my soul had just torn in half and my heart just blew up. And I really wanted to die. I wanted to die. I wanted to leave my body and catch Matt before he got too far away from me. It was, mm-hmm. it was the most profound experience I've ever had in my entire life. And I know I will never forget it. Yeah. Dissociation is, is such a real thing. And unless someone has experienced it to a a degree beyond, you know, the, the lowest form of dissociation that I speak of is, you know, when you get in a car and you go from point A to point B and you get to point B and you're like, how in the world did I even get here? I don't remember driving here. That's the mm-hmm. lowest form of dissociation. But um, certainly when you feel like um, I'm not real or this world is not real, you know, almost as if you're viewing yourself from a, a third person view, it's a scary thing to dissociate like that. And certainly that's that sounds like what was going on with you at that point. Well, I had never experienced anything like that in my life. Um, I'm very type A. Being an ICU nurse, you had to be. And at that point in time, I just felt like I had no control. I, I was just in this space that wasn't part of this realm of earth Mm. of the hospital of it it was it was something that it's very difficult to even put into words um you know i just felt like i had evaporated and i just wanted those particles that were left of me to go find him before he got too far away i just wanted to be where he was Mm. And, and and sadly I didn't think of my husband my other son I thought of no one I just wanted to find Matt so at this point Mary Beth we're, we're kind of nine years removed from those moments yes. mm-hmm. 
what are your thoughts today? Like how, how have those thoughts changed throughout that nine years? Well, you know, to be honest with you, um, even after nine years, some days I, I will still have very dark days. They're not as frequent as they used to be in the early days. But his anniversary was January the 3rd. And I could just feel it coming. Like, you know, the body remembers. Yes. Whether we don't want it to remember or not, it remembers. And I could feel that choking sensation. I could just feel like I wasn't here, like like shaky, but I would hold my hand out and it wasn't shaking. It, it's just this total bizarre experience. And, you know, I, I still go through these. Um, I also understand that, you know, I, I do believe in God. And I think that is really one of the only reasons I have survived this long. I do believe, you know, Matt was suffering terribly when I saw him going through withdrawal, trying to get into treatment. Um, the stigma was horrific. You know, people would tell me that, oh, he's a useless human being. You know, he's better off dead. He was, in, uh, you know, a burden to society. Um, they didn't see the person that I saw, you know, the loving brother, the, the wonderful uncle, the son, um, you know, the, the homeowner, the business owner. It, it was so horrible what people would say to me even after he passed away. So I, I, when I talk to other mothers, I was told, and you probably were too, you've heard this, I'm sure, that when you get through all the firsts, you're going to feel like the weight of the world has lifted and everything is going to come back beautiful. The sun is shining, the flowers are blooming, and, and life just returns. And I, you know, you struggle through all the first, you, you baby steps. I would feel like I was crawling through quicksand to get through the birthdays and, you know, the anniversary and the first Christmas and Thanksgiving. We were a very close family and we always celebrated the holidays at my house. When that first year ended and the second year began, I felt worse. Mm. And, you know, and I thought, what is wrong with me? That's not what they told us. That's not what the, I read. I'm supposed to feel better. And then when I really started doing research, I found that the people who weren't afraid to be honest to those of us who were grieving said that the second year was far worse than the first. And so now when I speak to mothers who have are newly bereaved, I, I don't lead them on. You know, because I don't want them to feel like I felt like something was wrong with me. That, you know, why aren't I happy? Why doesn't it matter to me that, you know, the sun is shining and the flowers are blooming? Why am I still in so much pain? Mm. I want them to know that that's perfectly normal and not to beat themselves up. Yeah, I think everybody's grief experience is highly different and it there there's so many factors that I don't think that you can put anything in um in a box that says these things are common mm -hmm. for example you know I always use the example of two siblings that lose a parent you know right. there's a lot of factors in how each of those siblings would grieve you know could mm -hmm. gender play a role yes could closeness play a role yes could uh, proximity to that person play a role. Yes. You know, there's, there's so many different things. Um, so then when you're talking about, I, I do speak a lot about, you know, that year of first is very important. And then it's that second year, I think where people may 
start believing that, okay, I've been here before I can do this again. Mm-hmm. But like you're stating, there are times where people do not believe that, that things are drastically different and maybe they do just, just as you spoke earlier that you wanted to make sure that you didn't get too far away from Matt. And then when you start looking at time, well, if, if I've been without a certain person longer now, then the distance may actually feel further away. You know, I, I, Mm -hmm. my dad posted something on Facebook the other day that it's been nine years since my grandfather passed away. And it's like, Oh my gosh, like, what happened? Like, I, I can't even believe it's been that long ago. Um, but, you know, I sit here and think if, if my grandfather were allowed a phone call to me from heaven, you know, <laughs> would I recognize his voice? And, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's part of me that says absolutely with, you know, 100%, I would remember it. But if I sit here and try to recall and I think that's one of the hardest things in grief too, is mm-hmm. remembering somebody's voice. We can, we can remember pictures of them. You know, we've got pictures, but right. remembering mm-hmm. their voice is just something that I don't hear enough about, but I think mm-hmm. it's one of those longings of the heart just to, to hear someone. You know, that you brought that up and, and that is so spot on. Um, that is one of my biggest fears. Um, Matt was a texter. He would never leave me a voicemail. And believe me, I searched through my phone. I had my friends and his friends search through their phones just so I could have his voice forever. Mm. And that is one of my biggest fears. And I, I, I do experience that. I, I struggle to remember the sound of his voice. And, you know, some days I just have to be alone and be very still and close my eyes and see if I can conjure it up, conjure up his face, conjure up his smile and try to remember the sound of his voice. Mm. And I, I do think that is a very hard part of grieving because we do, I mean, our brains are only capable of so much memory. And I know grief brain is really bad with memory of any kind. Um, But that is really one of the hardest things. I totally agree with you that remembering their voice. um, I will see, or I'll be out of the store and I'll see a, a man, you know, in his 30s walking and sometimes something about his gait or the way he moves his hands will mm-hmm. just catch me and I'll think, oh, I remember that. That's how Matt used to walk or how we tilted his head or, but it's that voice that still is something that would be such a gift yeah. if I could just hear it one more time. So here's something that I'll, I'll ask you and, and uh, I'm not sure how to even describe this, but I've seen certain things like on Facebook where they'll take a picture from say, I don't know, the 1940s or something, you know, some, someone that's was around before video was common, uh, besides the old eight millimeter film or something. And then they'll, (laughs) um, make it to where this person is moving or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, speaking or something. And to me, it's, it's odd. Now I, I see where some people would find comfort in that, but right. um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on manufactured things like that, where it's, it wasn't necessarily genuine from that person, like a moving picture mm-hmm. or what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because someone on Facebook did that to a picture of Matt. Mm-hmm. and sent it to me and um gosh when i opened it up it was like startling mm. um because you know i i i knew there was no way this was real it, but and and you know just he tilted his head and he blinked his eyes and um mm. um yeah it, it was like oh my gosh um 
it kind of hit me both ways. It was sure. like, okay, um, this is kind of how Matt would tilt his head and, and blink his eyes. But then on the other hand, it, it kind of made the guilt wave hit again mm. because then I thought, well, this is something I will never see again. So it was like a double-edged sword. You yeah. know, it, it, it was nice to kind of see that live picture, if you want to say that. Sure, sure. But it, then it also brought back what I will never see again and what I was missing every day. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that is extremely difficult. And, um, you know, going back to just even watching live videos that mm -hmm. were real non-manufactured, um, right. I think that can be difficult for people also just to know that this was a time when this person was here, they were present, they were living. And now this is just a reminder that they're not, um, I think mm -hmm. we have to have I guess, safe places, safe times, you know, different things mm -hmm. that say I'm in an okay spot to deal with what I'm about to see. You know, I think a lot of times where we have pictures of loved ones, you know, laying around the house or, you know, posted mm -hmm. up on a wall, that right. could be triggers for people that, you know, it's, I'm not ready for that. And so I mm -hmm. often talk about, uh, you know, the grief box, a, a safe place to keep certain mm -hmm. items, certain things that say, these are important. I don't want to get rid of them. I need these reminders, but I have control over this box that says when it's opened and when it's closed. And I think we also have to do that in our minds. We have to have a uh, container for all of our mental things, you know, like there are days yes. where I can deal with certain things uh, better than others. I, I speak to my mm -hmm. clients often about having a container for all of life's issues, but no, it's, it's almost like Pandora's box with, uh, <laughs> you can open it up when you want to and get one item out at a time <laughs> and the rest of them you need to leave in there because otherwise we start overwhelming ourselves. So I don't know. What, what do you think about uh, keeping things, I won't say locked up, but at least contained for better mental health, whether it's a physical item or mm -hmm. whether it's just something of your mind? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I really think that's an individual thing. I know myself, uh, Matt's urn is here. It's we have built-ins in our living room, and his urn is there, and pictures of him and his brother are are on those shelves also. And uh, but I do have boxes, like you say, of pictures when they were children back, you know, before we had the phones that you could take pictures and store them on the cloud. Mm -hmm. I have those old-fashioned photo albums. And, um, you know, I, I know there are days when I have to ready myself mentally. If I want to go back in time and, you know, go through the, the, as babies and, and as toddlers and then, you know, as, you know, school age children, if I'm looking for a picture somebody has asked for something, I, I know I have to get in that frame of mind mm. that I just have to do the job. I can't look. I just have to find and I have to make a copy and I have to give it. And then there are other days when I'm just having one of those really bad days where I just need to surround myself with them and remember and just let the grief wash over me of what was and now you know what will never be you know mm. i will never have a picture of matt's child he was single he never had any children never had a wife um i do have well matt lived here with me the last seven years of his life before he you know moved down to florida 
which we thought was going to be a good thing. And I had a closet full of his winter clothes. And I can tell you, I remember, like, I, I do a lot of ministering now to the homeless and to the addicted, and that really helps me to survive. And I would go down this closet, and I would think, okay, today, you are going to do this. You are going to gather his sweatshirts and his sweatpants, because they're not helping him, they're not helping anyone, and you need to get them into the community. Matt would want you to do this. That's what I would always tell myself. Mm. Matt would want you to do this. And I'd open up that closet. It was a big walk-in closet. And I'd open up that closet. And I would get that smell of him. And I would take a shirt off the hanger. And I would start to put it away in a box. And I'd take a second one down. And then I would, the third one, I would wrap myself in it. And I would find myself sitting on that closet floor with all of his clothing wrapped around me and just smelling every article that I could mm. to see if I could capture him again in my mind. And I was alone one day. My husband was at work and I had a shepherd. And I remember I was in the closet and I probably was sobbing and I didn't even realize it. And the dog came and she just laid next to me and put her head on my lap. And we just sat there. And, you know, I thought, okay, <laughs> today obviously is not that day. Yeah. So I just put everything back on the hangers and I closed the door. And um, I can say that in nine years, I have been able to go in and pack up things and take them to homeless shelters or if I see someone on the street I will give them a code or whatever item that I have but I still have items in his closet that I just cannot part with and they will be there until I'm gone and whoever has the house after that it'll be up to them to do whatever they will do but I just can't I, I still, I don't know, this is going to sound a little crazy, but the bar of soap that he used in his shower is still there. Mm. I um, have tried. I cleaned the shower. I just can't get rid of that bar of soap. And um, when I've shared this with other mothers in my support group, they have said, oh, my goodness, thank you for saying that because... I can't get rid of his toothbrush. It's still in his toothbrush holder or his razor, the last razor that he used. It still has his beard hairs in it and I can't get rid of it. So I just think it's, it's very, very individual. I think grief is like your fingerprint. Yes. That everybody, you know, wears it differently. And I think it's our way of, trying to remain connected to that individual, um, mm -hmm. you know, whether it is a bar of soap or hairs on a razor. Um, my sister-in-law has, uh, she, she has been single her whole life, but, uh, loves animals. And mm -hmm. the other day she told, uh, my wife and I that she's got, a, a couch cushion where her dog's paw print still is from, and it passed away two years ago and she just can't like stomach, you know, going over there and wiping that paw print off. And, uh, <laughs> and I think yep. we do anything and everything to try to remain connected with the things that, um, are no longer there in our life, such as, mm -hmm humans and even dogs. And, uh, I don't know. I, it's each person is different. You're right. It's, um, in my personal life, I've found that keeping one or two items of an individual versus, you know, keeping everything from an individual is helpful. Um, and there are certain people that ask, how do I do that? And, and and this is not a knock on you at all, Mary Beth. I, I do believe everybody's got their own journey, but if there's somebody listening that says, I want 
to do this. I want to get some of these things mm -hmm. out of the house. Yeah. I always suggest taking a picture and writing a story about the item and then, you know, give it to Goodwill, sell it, mm -hmm. do whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that way, because it's, it is truly the memory of the item, I believe that, uh, that connects us. But in your case where you're stating, okay, his clothes smell like him. I, I can still smell him. Okay, that's that's a little bit different in the fact that it's it is using one of your other senses that uh you know, obviously you can't engage through a picture of an item, right? You can't take pictures right. of his clothes and still smell him. So, but I do believe it is totally up to the individual. I think we have to give room for people um in how they grieve and the things that they hold on to. Um, I, I think we are quick to judge people, but mm -hmm. our journeys are so, so different. They are. And I always tell people, whatever works for you, I'm not in your heart. I'm not in your mind. I can't read your mind. So if cleaning out that closet is what makes you feel good, knowing that clothing will help another human being, absolutely. If holding on to certain items is what you need to do, absolutely. I, I think you're right. I don't think we have the right to judge anyone in how they grieve or how long they grieve. Right. Uh, I think, you know, I think that's the problem with society. I think they have tried to put a limit on grief, on the years you are allowed to feel this way. Uh, I've had people come up to me and say, my gosh, it's been over five years. What's wrong with you? And I say, well, I can tell you how long it's been. And I loved him. I had him for 37 years. And I'm not going to get over him in five and, you know, I always say, you know, close your eyes and think about which child you could live without mm, and then wow. get back to me. Yeah, that's that is a uh, that's a powerful statement right there. Mm -hmm. mm. I always say that because, you know, people think it's just so easy. Oh, well, you know, they're gone. Move on with your life. And I say, well, which chair is empty at your kitchen table? Mm. You know, are your kids coming for the holidays? You know, um, oh, your your son's having a baby. I'm very happy for you, but I will never have that joy. And, you know, I think when you start to come back at them, well, like I said, with, you know, close your eyes and tell me which child you could see not being in your life anymore forever mm. and then let me know what you come back with and yeah. i think that really hits them you know i'm not trying to be mean but let me grieve you know let us just be grief however we need to grieve I certainly feel that statement when you, you tell me that like, and, and I only have one child, so I, I can't imagine mm -hmm. losing her regard. I can't imagine losing a child. If I had a hundred children out there, right. Um, I, I just, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't ever want to know that pain ever. No, um, I would never, ever wish this on anyone. It is devastating and debilitating at times. It really is. Has has the loss of Matt influenced um, the thoughts of your own mortality at all? Well, yes, absolutely it has. And um, actually in 2019, I was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Um, uh, thymoma, which I'm told is, is rare. But luckily, I, I went to University of Pennsylvania and I had, you know, the usual chemo, and then I had two pretty big surgeries, and then radiation, and um, thank God, I'm cancer-free at this mm, time. Good, very good. But yeah, it, um, it really does, you know, because, you know, I always thought 
And even though, you know, I was in the NICU and I would see, you know, infants dying, there was always a reason, you know, they were premature, their lungs weren't developed, their heart wasn't formed correctly. Um, there was always an issue. But to have, you know, a child die before you, I mean, we're all programmed that we're going to lose our parents first. Right. And then it's our turn. And then our kids will be here to say goodbye to us. Right. And then when it's reversed and it's your child that you're saying goodbye to, that is completely not <laughs> what is supposed to happen in this life according to how we've been wired. Mm. So it is it's just unsettling and it does make you think that you know if i lost my child you know i'm next i mean it could happen and and i think i know for me i don't speak for everyone but when the worst thing that you could ever imagine could happen to you happens to you then you always think the worst like i do like, you know, my other son, he works for a fire department. Um, if I can't get a hold of him and I hear there's a bad fire or, you know, something, I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, please, God, please. No, 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 no. I can't go through this again. You you got to, you know, and, and then I have to stop myself and say, all right, get a grip. You know, you weren't like this before you lost Matt. Mm. And and you you have to just... He's, he's busy, he's tied up, he will call you. But I, I also hear that from a lot of moms now that have lost a child. They also have great fear that they might lose another one. Yeah. And how could they survive that? And sadly, uh, we've had a mom in our grief community who did lose her second son. And, oh, um, wow took she took her life a few months after his loss mm, how sad yeah it was heartbreaking um for everyone but i understand i could never ever fault her um i just pray that she is at peace and she is with her boys mm. now, do you have hope of seeing matt oh i absolutely do that's, that's I have to. I, I don't know how to survive thinking that this is all there is. Yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine. Um, there's so much pain and suffering in this world. And you know, after I lost Matt, you know, I started reading, of course, <laughs> books about heaven and um, books written by people who have had near-death experiences. Oh my gosh, and, it's like you just listened to my last podcast <laughs> that I recorded last hour. Uh, it, you're, you're prophetic. I, I don't know. <laughs> we literally had that conversation. So yep. let me let me interrupt you real quick, uh, Mary Beth, mm -hmm. and just ask, like, what are a couple of the heaven books that you've read? Um, oh my God. You're anything that you can think now. of? Oh, I'm sorry. Um no, no, no. My, my, I'm telling you, my brain, Heaven is for Real was one. Okay. Um, 90 Minutes in Heaven was another. And um, oh, God, there was a one written by an orthopedic surgeon that she drowned and talked about her whole experience in heaven, but I can't remember what that was. Hmm. But it was really, really good. And then the one I'm reading now is, is Heaven for Real. Okay. Did you by chance see the movie that came out at the end of last year called After Death? I didn't, but I'm I want to watch that. Yeah, we were talking about that. It took took me a minute or two to to figure out, and I'm I'm like, okay, I have to do an internet search here. But um, I would like to see that, and and it seems like some people's experience were it, it was. Um, not so pleasant and some people had a such a pleasant journey to mm -hmm. heaven that they did not want to come back and it's right. just so interesting mm -hmm. um i have a quest right now to to find this hospice nurse her name is nurse hadley i've 
sent some communications to her. I hope she returns my, uh, my email and, uh, comes on the show because I want to know what she has seen in those last moments mm. with people. Um, I do have another hospice nurse coming on in February. So, but I, I feel like those moments, um, mm -hmm. especially for believers, there's just such a, uh, I call it when heaven and earth collide and oh, yes. there's gotta be something to it. It's just too common. Mm -hmm. Um, but I love to hear about what is to come and, and mm -hmm. I don't think our minds can really fathom, uh, just mm -hmm. what really is to come and, and it's exciting. And, um, the older I get, I guess the more I look forward to it because I, I do, mm -hmm. th this sounds worse than I mean it, but I lose hope in the things of this world. Like it's, I'm no mm -hmm. longer looking Absolutely. to collect items or, you know, like I can honestly say at 48 years old, I do not have a bucket list. There's nothing more in mm -hmm. this earth on this earth that I feel like I need to do nothing. I need to accomplish nobody that I feel like I need to apologize to like, and, and again, I, I love life. I don't want to leave life, but, but I, I think it's interesting. Now, had you talked to me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have been clinging to life. Like there's so much more I've got to do so much more I want to do. Right. But when I know really what is to come, um, mm -hmm. wow. It's, and I, I look forward to reuniting with family members and friends and just people in this life that are no longer here. I, I think what a day, what a reunion, what mm -hmm. a party it will be. <laughs> It will be. And, you know, it's funny, I'm 67. And um, being a nurse, I have had experiences with patients who were dying. And um, I remember one little man, he, I, he was one of my favorites. I used to call him my little leprechaun. He was a little Irish man named Michael. And he was just the sweetest thing. And I remember being with him the last moments of his life. And he was staring at the corner of the room. And I said, Michael, what are you looking at? He goes, oh, my wife's sitting in the chair over there. Mm. She keeps waving to me. And I said, oh, but is she saying anything? And she goes, no, but she's just telling me, waving me over, waving me over. And um, yeah, I went out of the room, checked my other patient. I come back in and he was, you know, in the process of leaving. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I caught the brightest flash of light in that corner where he had been staring wow and i looked back at him and he was gone and i was just like and another nurse had started to walk in the room and i didn't say anything to her and you know she came up and you know i said you know he's gone and she goes did you see that and i said did you see it and she goes yeah I wow. Well, I think his wife was here. And my aunt passed away in August, and I was with her a few days before she, well, two days before she actually passed. And I was in the room with her. And, um, you know, she was 91, had diabetes, you know, just a little confused. But this day, she was completely coherent. And we were sitting there and we just kind of chit-chatting. And she looked over in the corner and she said, my father's here. And I said, oh, I said, Pop-Up's here? Because, he, you know, he's my grandfather and I called him Papa. Mm -hmm. And she goes, yes. And I said, well, where is he? And she said, he's right over there in the corner. You know, of course, I looked because I'm thinking, gosh, I wish I would love to see him, you know. And um course there's nothing there and I said well is he talking to you is he saying anything and she said no but he's just looking at me and he's he's coming closer and then my aunt was very mild manner she started to yell I'm not ready I'm not ready I don't want to go I don't want to go I'm not ready and, mm. and got very combative with me and started like grabbing at me and you know reaching for me and I was like you know Oh, it's okay. Settle down. Settle down. If you don't want to leave, it's okay. You don't have to leave. And 
she's like, well, tell him I'm not ready. And, and finally, I guess, you know, she scared him away. <laughs> and, um, you know, she went, became peaceful again. Um, two nights later, she was gone. Wow. So that, and it was, it was, uh, I can chuckle about this, um, but there was a chaplain in there with us. The hospice chaplain was in there with us. And my aunt said that my grandfather was there. He got out of his chair and he ran out into the room, uh, into the hallway. So after I, she had settled down and I was leaving, he met me in the hallway and he goes, oh, that really scared me. That startled me. And I said, yeah, I, it was kind of startling. Um, but I said, you know, being a nurse, I've kind of seen this happen before. So it, it kind of made me feel good that, mm -hmm. okay, you know, my grandfather is around, you know, they are around and they are going to come and, you know, help us transition to the next place mm -hmm. and it, it it just kind of gave me like a a sense of peace and then i sadly i wasn't there when she passed it was at night and um when they called me and i said i kind of chuckled to myself and i said well i guess i wonder who came to get her because she certainly wasn't going with her father so i thought you know maybe my mom came or, or one of her other sisters but i i think knowing that that truly happens does help us to not be so fearful. You know, like I have so many people say, oh, I can't wait to meet Jesus. And mm -hmm. I say, well, I can't wait to meet my son. I'll meet Jesus later. <laughs> but mm -hmm. the first person I want to see is my son. And I'm like, sorry, Jesus. <laughs> Maybe Matt can take me to you, but my first person is my son. So, mm. well, tell me how you're helping others through your own grief. Like, what what all do you do in the grief community now? Well, I do run a support group. It's called Support After Addiction Death. And it's mostly parents, but we do have um, some wives in there who have lost their husbands, and we do have some siblings. Um, I accept everyone because, you know, we all have the grief. It's just different people in our lives, but we all have lived the trauma of the addiction, the fighting for treatment. You know, we all have that common thread that we've lived through that has led us to this outcome. So I do that. And I also started what I call a hug from Matt. My son was very, very generous and he had the best hugs. He was this, I'm like five, two, and he was like, I'm six foot. And he would wrap me in these giant hugs. And I remember the Christmas after he died, I was just so sad. And I, I was thinking, you know, what do I miss the most about him? And I thought it's his hugs. And I had been with him one day and I hate to admit this, but he was going through withdrawal and we couldn't get him into treatment. So I was driving him around the city trying to find pills so he wouldn't suffer. And, you know, here I am a nurse and, you know, but you do what you do for your child because I saw him go through withdrawal and it was absolutely horrific. And none of the detox centers would take him and uh, I thought okay well you'll die if we don't get some pills into your system so I took him around and um, we were driving into a you know a sketchy part of the city and there he told me to stop the car and I was like Matt why and he said mom just stop the car well I didn't see this person but there was a gentleman on the corner and it was winter, and he had a sleeveless shirt on and just a very thin pair of pants. Matt got out of his car, took off his coat, and gave it to this young man. Wow. And he got back in the car, and I'm like, Matt, what are you doing? And he's like, Mom, he has nothing. I have other coats at home, and I have a warm house. And that really hit me after he died. So I started a ministry, and like I said, I call it a hug from Matt. I have backpacks that actually say a hug from Matt on it, and they're blue because that was Matt's favorite color. 
and um, I fill them in the winter with hats, gloves, scarves, socks, hand warmers, non-perishable foods, hygiene items, and we take them out into the uh, homeless communities, into the um, homeless encampments where they live in tents um, all over the state. Last year alone, we gave out 1,256 backpacks. Wow. Um, this month alone, I've given out probably 84. Um, and, you know, it, it's really helped me to survive by giving back to the community that, you know, Matt was never homeless, but a lot of his friends were because sadly at that time, tough love was the thing that was being promoted by a lot of treatment centers. So parents would really disown their children, um, not give them food, not give them clothing, just kick them out of the house. And I met a lot of Matt's friends when he was still alive that were in that situation. And I'd have them come home and we'd feed them and let them shower and I'd give them clothes. So it made me really feel good to do that then. And I thought, you know, this is my next step in surviving. And when Matt died, my aunt gave me a magnet that said, when God closes one door, he opens another. And, you know, God closed the door to me saving Matt. And then a few months later, I lost my job in the NICU because I my brain broke. And I wasn't that smart girl anymore. And I was terrified that if I made a mistake and another mother's child died because of me, that I would never be able to forgive myself. Mm. So both my doors were closed. Um, and then one day, like I said, I was just thinking about that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And it's, it's taken off. It was just me taking stuff down to the city where the homeless are. I would park my car and open my trunk and I would have, you know, cat, uh, coats and hats and all kinds of stuff and blankets and they would all come running. And I got to know them and I got to listen to their stories. And they're truly beautiful people that the world forgot. Yes. And I would go home feeling so happy that you know i had reached somebody else's son that you know maybe i couldn't save matt but i can make another person feel worthwhile that mm. i could make them feel that somebody did care about them and wanted to feed them and wanted them to know that they were loved so wow. i have been doing this ministry for the last nine years and um it's been so wonderful. I've gotten a lot of support from the people in my state. A lot of treatment centers now ask for my backpacks and take them out to when they do homeless outreach. Um, they, they are all over the state. And it, it's, it's just really incredible when I am driving down a road and I see a person with my backpack on their back. Wow. It, it's just, it gives me... I just feel like, okay, God, this is why I'm still here. This is what you got me doing. And um, I will do it for as long as I can. And it honors Matt. Yes. It's really his legacy. And and I did a few things with our Senate and our House. I've been involved in passing legislation on how addiction is treated in our state because mm. I saw how horrible people suffering were treated um there was no place for them to go and they were shunned and you know it was the tough love and sober homes would kick people out in the middle of the night and you know onto the streets and they would die alone with the clothes on their back and actually that's really what happened to Matt. and um so i got a bill started and i worked on it for three years and it is regular Regulating sober homes in my state of Delaware, and it is named after my son. It's the Matthew D. Klozowski Act for sober homes regulation in our state. 
Wow. And wow. I just felt like that was past June the 30th of 23, the last day of session for our legislative hall. And um, it was just an accumulation of three years of research and advocacy work and speaking before the Senate and the House and anybody that would let me tell the story of how bad sober homes were for so many people in, in you know, seeking help. And I, I just feel like Matt will always be remembered in Delaware and his name is now on a bill. And I, I just, I can't tell you how that makes me feel that his life, his death were not in vain that his legacy will live on through me. And hopefully when I'm no longer here, people will remember him for the loving person that he was. How will people remember you? Me? Yeah. (laughs) Oh gosh. You know, I just hope they remember me as somebody who cared. There you go. As, um, you know, just just a person who was just trying to make a difference, uh, one hug at a time. I I call my backpacks. You know, I give one hug at a time, and you know that's. I think that's what we're here for. Yeah. To help each other, to reach out, to let people know that their lives matter, no matter if they're living in a tent or if they're living in a mansion. It doesn't matter to me. I I want everyone to know that they matter nice well mary beth we're here at the end of our hour but uh certainly i want to give you any last words any any thoughts that you have that you kind of want to close us out with um anything that you think we missed well i i just want people to be kind to each other And not put expectations on those of us who are grieving. Um, And just reach out and be there. Because some days, you know, I just can't pick up the phone and ask for help. Hmm. But if somebody calls me, it's so nice to realize that they were thinking of me. And also, if, if you see a homeless person on the corner holding a sign, don't be cruel. They're not doing that to annoy anyone. They're really doing it to survive. And if you can, you know, offer them a meal or a blanket or a pair of socks, please consider doing that because, you know, their life is very hard. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a tough world. And we are here. We are blessed so that we can bless others. And that's mm. what I think we really need to do. Well, Mary Beth, thank you so much for being here. I, I really appreciate your your thoughts and, and words. And uh I know it's not always easy speaking about grief, but uh you you did a great job and I, I just appreciate you being here. Well, thank you, Paul. And I really appreciate you um having me and uh, allowing me to share this time with you. Yeah, yeah. You ended up calling me by my first name. I did. Is that okay? <laughs> we had a conversation uh, before we started about uh, how people will call call someone by their their first name or, or middle name, and um, I I like my middle name better, Brad, and it's what people have always called me. But uh, it's so funny when people do call. You know, they're they're like, "Is Paul there?" And I'm like, oh, "Okay, they don't know who I am." <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, Brad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's all good. I, I go by anything. I always say I've I've been called much worse, right? <laughs> oh yes, we all have, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again, Mary Beth, and uh, thanks everybody for listening to another Grief Observed podcast. I hope you've been blessed by this podcast, and uh, and I hope you continue tuning in. And if you want to be on the show, just as Mary Beth was today, send me that email at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. We will catch you next episode. Have a great day, everyone.